People, welcome to Private Equity Laid Bear, the podcast. Today, a topic about as hot as it gets, ESG. Um, we have a very special guest, uh, Delila. Um, Delila, thank you for, for being here. Just say, if you can say a few words about what you do, and then uh, we're going to jump right in in ESG with my first question, which would be what that means. Thanks, Ludo. Uh, it's really wonderful to be here. I've been following your work and I uh, really appreciate everything that you're that you're doing and that you publish. Um, and I'm really excited about our conversation today. So um, my name is Delilah Rothenberg again. I'm the founder and executive director of the pre-distribution initiative, not redistribution, but pre-distribution with a P. Um, we're a multi-stakeholder effort to co-create improved investment structures that share more wealth and um, influence with workers and communities. Um, and also uh, working to have these structures um, and practices have more incentives for investment teams to integrate ESG and to ultimately address systemic and systematic risks, including inequality and climate change and biodiversity um, that are, are really critical um, elements of our world that the financial system rests upon. So you said you said integrating ESG. So E is environment, S is social, and G is government, governance. But what does that mean, integrating the environment, social, and governance into a company? Uh, what's that? Yeah, so um, the, the practice is really starting to mature of integrating ESG. And essentially what it means, um, particularly in a private equity context, is that the private equity fund should be um, screening the companies that they invest in for environmental and social issues. They should, when they invest, come up with an action plan of any gaps on environmental and social issues. But sorry, on, on the screening, does, does it mean like like the old style world that like if a company is like doing tobacco and you're like, oh no, then I just don't buy it. Is that, is that what you mean by screening? So there could be an exclusion list that a fund manager has. So they could say we won't invest in tobacco. Um, but it could also mean that they're screening for other issues, like are there labor, are there clear labor issues um, on a, in an agribusiness, since we're using tobacco as an example. Um, if it's a tobacco company uh, that they're looking at, uh, the screening process could, could say, okay, we're not going to invest in tobacco, but this company is transitioning their business model from tobacco to something, you know, more sustainable or, you know, uh, climate, climate change is a hot topic for that kind of transition, right? Where you might invest in a company that's exposed to fossil fuels and you say, okay, well, we don't want to invest in fossil fuels anymore um, or ever, um, but we, uh, we are interested in investing in a company that would transition away from fossil fuels into some kind of renewable energy. And so in the screening phase, you can really make those high level assessments. Maybe there's a company that um, is engaged in firearms and you say, okay, we're not going to invest at all. Um, there's, it, it really depends on what the mandate of the fund manager is and, um, and the investment thesis. And ESG is a little bit different than impact investing, uh, although the two are starting to converge, where impact investing is you say, okay, I only want to invest in products and services that have some kind of positive impact on the world. And that can be um, very sort of um, um, oh, subjective in terms of what's what are the values of that particular private equity fund? What do they care about? They might care about more about climate than they do about um, worker protections. And so impact investing is is a little uh, 
less comprehensive in that way. It's more focused on solutions, but it doesn't take into account negative impacts always of the companies that you're investing in. But if you layer on ESG or if you start with ESG, ESG is about managing environmental and social risks of the companies, um, avoiding and mitigating them. Um, because you believe that they will have some sort of negative impact, those environmental and social risks will have some kind of negative impact on the company or your um, your investments overall. So, so let me take, take an example of, of, of something I, I, I took issues with uh, recently. So there was someone who was like the head of impact for a very big private equity firm. And, and she goes out and say, you know, this is how we fight fight climate change. Okay. And so, and because it's a very famous firm and it was like in the press and and basically, if you read what she was saying was, well, you know, we have some oil fields in Texas. And what we have done is that we have built some protections around them because of climate change, there will be rising water. And so we are building fortifications around them so that we are robust to rising water, right? And so that's how we fight climate change. This is ESG. So I've taken into account the risk of the environment. And so that's what we do. And, 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 you know, I had a bit of fun with that, um, and, but, but, it, but it's also pretty sad. So, you know, we, we need to be careful about what, what managing risk means and whether, you know, and, and make the distinction with having a positive impact. Absolutely. It's a really important example and point that you make, Ludo. Um, there, there have particularly in the past been lots of examples, and there still are, of uh, investors who say that they're integrating ESG and managing environmental, social, and governance risks in investments that actually overall are not good for the environment or are not good for society. And I think that when I said before that ESG and impact investing are starting to converge, um, that's where that practice is really starting to change. A lot of investors are starting to say, okay, we don't wanna invest in industries that are bad for society and nature and the environment. Um, and we're going to layer on, uh, you know, an ESG lens. So you might invest in a renewable energy project, right? And it, uh, it's in a flood zone. So that would be a better, a more holistic approach of, of, um, of integrating ESG. You're investing in a renewable energy project and you're worried about the climate risk on that project. Um, but, uh, but certainly in the past, there were examples of, and, and there still are, and hopefully we're evolving away from that. Examples uh, like what you gave. But any any company has positive and external, negative externalities. You can always find a positive narrative around a company. And so I find that in that space, it's all is it's more a PR exercise about find me one thing that is good about you, and then talk about it. And 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 but there are always good things and bad things. So you have like you know somebody can have like uh, a coal mine in Pakistan and then explain to you that, you know, actually, if they were not there, all these people would be unemployed and would be very tempted to join the Taliban. And so thanks to them, you know, we, they, they bring a lot to the world. And, and then you say, well, but then but this is like a coal mine and then these people are paying nothing. So how does that work exactly? And so any, any that's an extreme case, but you, any business has that. And they, they are like what I talk about in my book of examples with the IFC, where they build a luxury hotel in Ghana and then say, well, that's ESG because you know it creates jobs. And you're like, jobs for whom? Like, like the locals, like these guys you pay nothing to hang around at the, at the bar, like to serve people and, and at the door, and, and you, you pay them like 
below poverty line salaries, and and that's positive impact, like or ESG, like what was that? So it's it's and and you know we we had once there was a guy where a, a big private equity CEO and our students said, what what do you do about ESG? And then the guy was like quite embarrassed, which was amazing because he's, he was a CEO of one of the very largest private equity firms, and he was like, well, you know, like recently we we have all these restaurants and hotels and we change the airco and and then you know we save money on the electricity and so you see like we did well and did good and so that's csg you know like we 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 do the right thing and it's good for everyone like i guess these kind of answers and, you know i'm so i i find it that it's quite a lot of pr exercise and the expose rationalization insisting about the good things that you have done in your business and any, any business can write that even a cannabis producer probably even a tobacco producer could you're absolutely right. And that, that is happening. Um, we're starting to see some movement around um, contextualizing ESG activities and impact investing activities in, in um, the context of what um, one might call planetary boundaries and social norms or thresholds or tipping points that are um, natural to our social systems and our ecological systems. And so some of the organizations that are doing great work around this are R3.0 and uh, the World Benchmarking Alliance. And they're raising awareness about the fact that um, for too long, investors and companies have been uh, measuring and managing their ESG practices on a relative basis. They often come up with targets or goals that are convenient for them. They're not contextualized in any sort of you know, okay, um, a 1.5 degree scenario in terms of climate change or two degree scenario. And that's, um, that's where science-based targets come in. So there's been some effort uh, by field building organizations to come up with um, science-based targets so that companies and investors can contextualize their activity and say, okay, this is how our activity contributes to climate change. Um, what do we actually, and this is how much, relative to, to a, a 1.5 or two degree goal, what do we have to do to pare back our activities or adjust our activities so we're not contributing so much? So we're, we're reducing our contributions to climate change relative to our, um, relative to, the, to our, what we do in, our, in the overall goals. And so um, there are science-based targets that have been developed for climate. There's some controversy around how robust they are. And there are also some efforts underway to develop science-based targets for social issues too, so that companies can say, okay, you know, we're, um, these are how all of our activities contribute to inequality, right? You map them out and then you say, okay, well, we're going to have to raise our wages this much. We're going to have to improve the affordability of the hotel in your example this much in order for us to really contribute to this global goal. Um, and the UN Sustainable Development Goals are, are being leveraged by these field building organizations who are coming up with science-based targets um, to say, okay, if we, if we wanna um, achieve this, the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, then how do companies and investors need to adjust their activities to really, um, how does each, in, in a customized way, each uh, investor and company have to adjust their activities to be able to meet these goals? But that's not really happening in practice yet. It's it's and perhaps not fast enough. Yeah, but it, but, but the problem as well is that if you say things like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make the hotel more affordable and so on and so forth, it means you leave some money on the table. And so 
you, you will have to, so to say, you know, and people to accept that, okay, I've decided to burn X million by, by taking this decision, right? And, and so that raises all kinds of issues. I think it's the right thing to do, but, but for a lot of people that, 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 is, that raises some issues. Another thing that is a bit strange with all this uh, uh, space is, is this thing that I, I think the best example when was there was this Davos summit where they discussed like climate change and then everybody had flown there with their private jets and then and everybody said you know I really care about the environment it's like really really bad and say and why are you going to take a train um, and 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 so it, it looks as well that like you know you have these people that come to our students and 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 do these big speeches about them caring so much about you know the poverty and this and that and then you know they walk out and 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 they 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 get into their luxury cars and then make sure they send a check to the local senator to make sure that you know the law doesn't change regarding their, their tax rate and 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 the like so so these sorts of things also makes me a bit uncomfortable at times often yeah so i think i i feel like i heard you make two really important points that um i think both connect with each other and it's what are the practices at the investment level. So unfortunately, ESG um, is typically applied at the portfolio company or enterprise level. So you've got a fund manager and their LPs say, we want you to integrate ESG or, or they decide that they're going to integrate ESG for some reason or another. And so what they're doing, what a fund manager is doing when it's integrating ESG is it's, is it's going through the entire investment process and it's working with the company, it's working to, to Invest in companies where it can apply ESG in a strong way. It's working with those investments once they're in the portfolio to improve on environmental, social, and governance issues, um, and and it's reporting throughout the process. And um, there's more detail, but I, I won't go into the detail of each stage of the investment process uh, for the sake of time. But what's interesting is that the investors themselves have some negative impacts that really should be measured and managed. And the existing ESG frameworks and metric systems don't really um, provide the tools needed to capture the negative impacts at the investor level. And so some of the things that um, we've looked at include fund manager compensation. So uh, you know, with the two and 20 model applied to billions of dollars of assets under management, for the mega fund managers, their executives are making you know, sometimes around $100 million a year or more I know you've done some of this, uh, some research around this, Ludo, and uh, many of them are becoming multi-billionaires, some of the wealthiest people. Um, and, and, you know, people are concerned about banking executives in the financial services industry. Well, banking executives are making roughly $30 million a year. So um, there's, a, there's a real gap in terms of measuring who in society is contributing to wealth inequality because ESG and impact frameworks are mostly focused on corporate CEOs and not on fund manager executives. Um, so that's one issue. Uh, then there's, you mentioned um, lobbying and political spend. There's lobbying and political spend that happens at the fund manager level. Uh, the ESG and impact uh, frameworks that exist are making progress on measuring and managing that activity at the portfolio company level, but completely ignore the fund manager level. Um, there's tax practices, domiciling funds and tax havens. And then this point about leaving money on the table, I think with the hotel example, um, I could put myself in a GP's shoes since I used to work with GPs 
and say, okay, well, you know, we're not really leaving money on the table because we're just adjusting the business model and we're going to have, you know, um, lower, you know, revenue per user or, or customer, but more customers if we have a, a lower price point um, for staying at this hotel. Um, and, but, you know, nonetheless, there are, there are lots of examples where strong integration of ESG may mean um, an impact on the IRR of a, of a particular investment. And I was in situations like that in the past, particularly in project development um, and uh, in infrastructure and agribusiness where um, a lot of early stage work needs to be done in environmental and social impact assessments to engage the local communities, make sure you're not having negative impacts on them, um, ensure that they feel, uh, you know, that they're, they're, they understand the project, um, that it will benefit them, and then biodiversity assessments and, and all of these kinds of things. And these assessments take up a significant amount of money early on in the investment process, and they can delay actual construction of a project or building out of, you know, an agribusiness project. And so um, they do, having managed financial models for some of these projects before, they do um, put a drag on the IRR and it can be very concerning to the project developers and they're under pressure from their GPs to meet a certain return and the GPs are under pressure from the LPs to meet a certain rate of return. And it, it, it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very difficult situation. And I think that if LPs and GPs really want strong ESG integration, they have to understand that you know, IRR and time value of money based metrics uh, encourage companies uh, and, and investors to try to make as much money back as fast as possible and to spend as little as early on as possible, which can have, um, which can be inherently in conflict with strong ESG integration and long-term sustainable investing. Okay, actually like, um, I, I'm, I'm putting you a bit on the spot, but if you could take the best example, a case study um, but for you, is the best ESG setup, or you know, whether ESG really made a big difference uh, in your experience? Like, could you walk us through like a concrete case, what happened and how it helped? And hmm. um, yeah, I can. Um, so I'm trying to think of which example. There were a few examples where um, this, is, this has to do with project development and project finance, still private markets, um, where it, they're, they're land-based investments, so in, in developing countries. So there are local people living on land. Um, they don't have legal rights to that land. They have customary rights that are recognized, uh, sometimes recognized by international law. And, and they might be farming the land and they have no place else to go. And so when a project developer comes in and gets legal rights to the land um, through uh, you know, a, a land lease or, or purchasing the land, something has to happen with those people. And um, one of the best ways to address that is not just to kick the people off the land, um, which was proposed in one investment I was involved with, um, or to um, or to pay the people, you know, some arbitrary amount to leave the land because if you just give them some cash and they don't, um, that's that's not what their livelihood is based on. They're farmers, right? Um, they're not going to have 
they're not going to be able to buy new land with that cash or they might not buy new land with that cash. Um, it might not be the right amount. They might need additional. It, there's really a lot of work that needs to go into how much to compensate people so that they can have an equal or better standard of living once they leave that land. And the IFC um, has done some, some um, pretty good work around coming up with methodologies for investors to, to come up with those amounts. And so anyway, uh, the other thing that's really important to do is participatory land use mapping with these people who live on the land prior to developing the land. Um, and um, it, it can help identify land that you're not gonna use for the project that those people can stay on. It can help identify what land they actually use so that you know how much to compensate them. And there's not a controversy afterward about um, you know, who got compensated what. You can um, take an inventory of their crops to properly value them um, so that you know how much uh, they should be compensated. And that kind of work is very detailed. And unfortunately, a lot of project developers don't do that level of analysis, but it really protects um, both the local people and the project. Um, it protects the local people in terms of obviously their um, continued livelihoods and standards of living, and it protects the local project from any controversy in the future. And, um, but it's a, it's a choice that project developers need to make early on, and they're under a lot of pressure to produce a high IRR. And unfortunately, it requires a lot of work and iterative meetings with local people and consultants um, and all kinds of you know, technical support to map out the land and value everything um, in a participatory way that's not taking advantage of local people. And, but that really can produce good, strong outcomes. And, and there was one example of a project I was involved with where um, I insisted that we do that. And um, I heard later on after um, I was no longer involved with the project and there were new owners that that was a real, um, the fact that that activity was done um, made the lenders more comfortable with lending to the project. And it was a, a real catalyst in um, bringing on the, the uh, project financing that was needed. And I, and I think it worked out well for the local people as well. Um, so yeah, I guess I would just call it like good business practices, like normal practices, just like being rational and being smart. But, but uh, yeah, um, because otherwise you just like lose in the end anyway, if all these people are very upset and the like. But uh, th thank you so much, Delida, for, for uh, this insight into uh, ESG. So this was uh, ESG laid bare. Don't forget to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.